The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you don't mind, the book of Mark. We're going to continue our discussion there here in just a moment. Um, we're going to be picking up along about verse 9, Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. It's where we'll be when you get there. While Bobby's handing those out and while you're turning, I want to share a little bit of a story with you that occurred with me back several years ago, many years ago as a matter of fact. Um, I was discussing, I think it was a Bible class, I don't even know why, but I was discussing John the Baptist. I prefer to call him John the Baptizer now, but John the Baptist in a Bible class. And uh, I made mention of the fact Somewhat jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, I said, you know what, I have no idea what John the Baptist's last name was, but I do know for a fact that that term Baptist had nothing to do with his religious affiliation either. And so I said that and didn't think much about it and moved on. And I had a, an older gentleman come up to me in the back after that class hour, whatever was over, and he came up and he said, uh, you say you don't know John the Baptist's last name. I said, no, I don't know his last name. I, I don't have any way of knowing. I wouldn't know how anybody would. And he said, well, weren't him and Jesus cousins? I said, yeah, they were cousins. I, that's the way I, I understand it anyway. He said, well, was that on the mama's side or the daddy's side? And I said, well, I believe it's mama's side. That would have been Mary and Elizabeth were sisters, the way I understand that. And he said, well, it won't work then. I guess it won't work. And I said, uh, what are you talking about, Mr. Arthur? And he said, well, uh, if it was on the daddy's side, I would assume his name would be John Christ. And uh, I looked at him kind of crazy, and he, he didn't crack a smile, didn't move. And I said, well, much like John the Baptist, that's more a descriptive term. And Jesus Christ means Messiah. That's more a descriptive term and, and such. I, I don't know exactly what to do with that and he said well you learn something every day and he walked off so I don't know I don't know he was a really good jokester but at the same time he was kind of one of those guys that liked to one-up you every now and then so maybe he was attempting that day I think the Bible won on that one but uh, that that's the major two characters in our discussion tonight both Jesus and John the baptizer beginning in verse 9 and so I just want to share that with you that's a true story uh, for whatever it's worth but uh that's, that's sometimes what people think, maybe. Uh, we've, we've already been reviewing in, in quite a bit of depth uh, what was discussed in verses 1 through 8. I've told you many, many times that my uh, interpretation, opinion of the New Testament, primarily when it comes to the epistles, but this has even borne itself out in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at least in my studies, that you can basically introduce a gospel account or any of that, any of those epistles, by taking view of the first three to eight verses. And I've shared that many times. And so I think that is very true about what we looked at in the past four weeks when we looked at that external introduction or basically the introduction to the introduction, then the external introduction. And then finally, the last week or two, the internal introduction coming out of those first eight verses. And generally speaking, some of the things we've learned, if you recall, is first of all, we learned that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And this is the beginning of his gospel account. I would probably interpret that at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And so if he dated that, that would put it somewhere around him being age 30-ish. Uh, we could round that different ways, but that's about when this took place. In addition to that, we were reminded, verses 2 through 8, that John the baptizer, John the Baptist, 
uh, definitely was the forerunner. He was the one that was promised, and prophecy proved that. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, Malachi 3 and 1 and verse, is it 1, 3 or 3, 1? One of those two. And also Malachi 4 and verse 5. Established the fact that there will be an Elijah, a forerunner, if you will, coming. And John the baptizer fit the bill on that. And some people miss that. We've already noticed as well that John came to baptize people, as he interpreted it, to baptize them for repentance. And also was calling on them to confess their sins in addition to repenting. And he said that that would be for the remission of sins. And I think on last time that we were together on Sunday, uh, kind of got an extra session there with Cliff being out of town. Uh, but we tried to draw some parallels between the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John and what their baptism were for, what the purpose was. And hopefully we were able to realize in general, John's baptism was true. It is for repentance. It is true they were required to confess their sins. And it is absolutely true that is for, better probably interpreted as the ASV 1901 said, for the remission of sins. And so it points toward the remission of sins, in the direction of, and then Jesus ultimately, whether one lived in the Old Testament or the New, uh, doesn't make any difference. We either point toward Christ from the backside or we point toward Him from the front side. Either way, Old or New Testament's there. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, those first eight verses. This next section, really, and we're going to break it into smaller pieces. You can see on the screen behind me, I assume. Uh, verses 9 through 20 talk about what I call the servant's beginning. And several, several weeks ago, I had these outlines. These are the more lengthier outlines of basically chapter 1 through also chapter 10 and verse 52. That's the first half of the book, his servanthood. The second half of the book being his sacrifice, that is Jesus. And then Bobby handed you out, hopefully you got it, two outlines tonight or two different charts slash outlines. And one of those is the smaller chart that I put on the screen a few different times. You'll probably see it again in a minute. Uh, but it's basically the parallels. So we've got Mark's account we're looking at, but at times we will be bouncing either to Matthew, Luke, or John's account for kind of ex some expanded information. And studying the Gospels in parallel is always a great way to study that. So that's what one of those charts are. Then the other one we're going to get to at some point tonight, I'm not sure with the clock, but uh, the other one we're going to get to talks about the fulfillment because Matthew's account of what we're about to read about Jesus being baptized Jesus told John specifically that he came to fulfill all righteousness. And so that's what that whole sheet is front and back has to do with. And it was really my way of making sure that I put that in your hands because we'll no way we'll cover all that information. But that gives you uh, quite a bit of scripture to help to explain and to go into some of that. And I'll tell you up front, there are four major points on that sheet. There are probably 400 that could have been applied. But that's kind of the four that stood out. To me, So we're going to be beginning here in verses 9 through 11, the confirmation. I just simply mean by that that what happens with Jesus being baptized in the wilderness by John is a confirmation from God of who he was supposed to be. You remember in John's account, and I mean by that the Apostle John's account, speaking of John the baptizer, that gets confusing. But John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the baptizer looks and sees Jesus, I guess out in the distance, and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And that was his purpose. That's what Matthew records for us. Matthew chapter uh, 1, beginning in verse 18 through 25, where it was even told to Mary and ultimately Joseph that he would be born. It was told then that he shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So that is Jesus' intention. 
That is his purpose. That's what he tells Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and verse 10. In that record, that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And so this is confirmation that that is going to take place. So let's read beginning here in verse 9. Let's just read these first couple of three verses of it. Verse 9, Mark 1 verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in the Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit uh, like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And of course, that is exactly what it sounds like, the baptism of Jesus. Now, why in the world is the baptism of Jesus mentioned as it is in this account as well as in the other gospel accounts? Well, it's because it is a confirmation in some senses of the fact that He was the Son of God. Now, we know already out of the gate that Jesus was not baptized Himself, obviously, for the remission of His sins. Why? Because He had no sins. And not even at that point, nor at any point in his life, is there any idea or any inclination that Jesus was guilty of any sin. So he had no sins to be washed. But why would he approach John in this way? Why would he be willing, like many of the throngs of people already, many of them Jews, were coming out to see John the baptizer near the Jordan River, which we find out in the previous verses. Have you come as far as from Jerusalem, from Judea, down to Jordan? Probably about a 20-mile span, it seems, physically, that many of these people came out to be baptized of John. Why was his baptism so influential? Why was it so important? Why was it so necessary? Well, uh, we summarize that by knowing that it was because it was a forerunner, a precursor to what ultimately Jesus would instill in his disciples and that we ourselves are required to do. And that is to be faithfully obedient to him, including the fact that we are baptized for, Peter told them on the day of Pentecost, for the remission of our sins. And so beginning here in verse 9, just a few things that stand out. We're going to back up into a really important spot in Matthew in a moment. But in those days, Jesus came of Nazareth and Galilee to be baptized in the Jordan. What does it mean to be baptized? We, we've answered this question many times. That requires someone to do what? Be fully immersed. It's not sprinkling. It's not pouring. It's not any of the other things that many in the denomination world would accuse or maybe they've tried and, and it was obviously ineffective. It requires, the word itself implies, that there is a full immersion. And we see that in every gospel account. We see that in every instance. As a matter of fact, even the baptisms, using that more loosely, of the Jews, uh, with they, which they were committing upon one another even prior to John coming out, even prior to Jesus' baptism being implemented on the cross and such, uh, the baptisms of the Jews required them to be immersed. They weren't doing sprinklings for that purpose or anything else. And so when it says he came out to be baptized, he knew, as well as all those throngs of people knew, they were going to be fully immersed when they arrived in that place. Now, the next phrase that I kind of circled, a word I circled here on the screen, I think, is the word straightway. We mentioned that several different times, maybe in the introduction, in the pre-introduction uh, part of this. The word straightway, uh, also backed up by several other English words, immediately and such, that's implied more than 42 times in the Gospel of Mark alone. Out of some 55 times it's mentioned in all the New Testament together, 42 of those times come here. 
And this is the very first time that it's used in this book. And what it emphasizes to me is that Jesus, in the very beginning of his ministry, in the very beginning of him hitting the scene and beginning to go out and do the work that he did, he saw the urgency and the need to be baptized, and we'll see for his own purposes. But he saw that need. And so for anyone at that place or anyone since that time, including ourselves, for us to refuse baptism, it would be wrong on so many levels and would keep us away from salvation. But if it were wrong for no other reason, it would be wrong because of the fact we're not willing to do something that even the very Son of God, Jesus, is willing to do. Of course, there's a lot more to that. But he came out straightway to do that. Now, when he did that, when that was accomplished... We see here very specifically the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. Now, does that mean there was a physical dove that flew down and, and was vision? No, no, it doesn't have to mean that. And whether, whether it was physical or not wouldn't make any difference. But if you'll look at the language carefully, and this happens many times in the New Testament, things are mentioned as being like something else. You know, the tongues on the day of Pentecost were like as of fire. The Spirit of God here is descending like a dove. Other instances you can think about, Jesus had sweat as it were like drops of blood. Now that very well could have been a physical uh, a, a medical thing that happened, but whether it was or not, it was still showing us in the Garden of Gethsemane his stress. And it would have been something that would have been taken seriously. But the Spirit of God moved upon him or appeared above him as or like as a dove. Now how important was it that the Spirit come down on Jesus in front of these people. I've read a couple different people, and these are, are, are not people that I necessarily respect, especially after reading some of these things over the past few weeks. But I've read a couple different people said, well, that is when the deity entered into Jesus, you know. That's the moment, that's the point when the deity entered into Jesus. That's wrong. He was God in a body when he came down. He was God as much God as he was in the manger as he is here. But by the Spirit coming down in front of these people, it becomes a confirmation that this is the Son of God and who He said He was. Now, I don't imagine this was something that was seen by Jesus or seen by John. This is something that is witnessed by everyone that was there. Again, that relates in picture at least much as the day on, on the day of Pentecost. Them speaking in those cloven tongues, or that cloven tongue coming down the previous chapter, and them speaking in those tongues in that case was something that was set to be a witness to the fact that they were who they were supposed to be, that they were preaching a gospel that ought to be heard. And so we have Jesus here with the Spirit descending upon him like a dove, and then even more that, verse 11, I've underlined the next phrase, and the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Now, this actually ties back to the first eight verses and, and much of what we talked about in the previous weeks in that John the baptizer was supposed to, quote, prepare ye the way for the Lord, quote, make those paths straight. And the two words we looked at earlier in this, that word prepared and prepared, they're two different Greek words in the text there, but both of those words imply that it was preparing a way physically, and that is literally that he was going out and teaching and preaching, but it was also preparing a way even more than that spiritually. And that emphasized in the minds of those men in that day, in and around first century time, something they were very familiar with. 
because when and if royalty was going to come to town, they would oftentimes do exactly that. They would get out and clean the streets, they would get out and clear the paths, and they would get out and proclaim, especially as he began to enter into that city or that specific province, they would proclaim that the Lord, or not the Lord, but the king had come. And so John the baptizer has been telling these people already in his ministry, which by the way seems to be about six months uh, from what we can find. He's about six months older than Jesus and it seems, uh, I don't know why it works out mathematically, but about six months earlier he hits the scene and starts this uh, requiring or asking of people to be baptized in turn upon repentance and confession of their sins. But he, he's, he's there, and he's been preaching this. He's been trying to convince people of this. He's already made that proclamation, as John records, John 1 and verse 29. He already understands, John 1 and verse 14, that the word that speaks of Jesus has came, became flesh and dwells among us. And he has seen and beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But now... The confirmation is not what Jesus says about himself. It's not what Jan the, John the baptizer says about him. It is a confirmation that comes directly from God. And so just like every miracle that is committed to throughout the New Testament record, whether it be by Jesus or later particularly by those apostles, those things were performed and done in order to be confirmation that God is who he said he was. And he tells us right here, this is my beloved son, and then adds this phrase here in Mark's account, in whom I am well pleased. Now, similar phraseology is used two different times in the New Testament records. What other occasion do we find God doing something much the same? Almost saying exactly the same words. The Mount of Transfiguration. And in that point in time, the witnesses there seem to be Moses and Elijah who were there with him as he's been transfigured. His form visually looked different. I don't know what that meant other than maybe he was, had a glow. I don't know all that. But he also has some of his disciples there with him. And what was that to them? Confirmation again that Jesus was who he said he was. And everybody needs that. Everybody needs that confirmation. And so it is extremely important, I think very viable here, that God chose to do that and to speak of him in that way. Now here's where we're going to pull off, and I kind of drew a little squiggly line or a block off line. Let's go back over to Matthew's account, because Matthew gives us some detail that I think is really necessary or, or can be at least handy or helpful in understanding what we're visualizing or, or witnessing here. Go back to Matthew's account. Matthew gets to this, and this is where that little chart I handed out Perhaps we'll have much of the same scripture references. But Matthew chapter 3, look at what Matthew says or how he kind of expands on what Mark is saying. Mark says this as we have it uh, in three verses as we see it. Verse headings weren't there necessarily, but Mark has it in three verses. Matthew goes into quite a bit more detail even though he doesn't take a whole lot more space-wise to do it. So Matthew chapter 3, beginning here, reading with me in verse 13. Matthew 3 and verse 13. It's the same context, really. Uh, as a matter of fact, in verse 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, and shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost, and with fire. Now verse 13, drop down. And then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, 
unto John to be baptized of him. Again, he has no sin, so there's really no reason why he would come for that purpose. He comes to him to be baptized of him. But John forbade him. That's King James speak for what? He stopped him. I, I don't know how and at what point he did that, if he was still at a distance or, or maybe he got up close. And I would imagine if I were John, if he got up close, I would I'd probably almost put my hands on him. Whoa, whoa, hold up. This is not even necessary. Uh, as a matter of fact, John may think to himself, you know, Jesus, if I were to baptize you, I'd contradict everything I've said because I've been telling all these people for all these months that this baptism was that of repentance and it required the confession of sin and you need neither one. But he comes up. And Matthew's account says he forbade him. He, he kept him away. He pushed him back, uh, whether it be verbally, obviously, and if not, maybe even physically. And saying, I have need to be baptized as thee, now comest thou to me? Now, is that true? Would John, if he had lived through this time frame, he was living, and Jesus at the time, both were living under the old law. But if John had outlived that old law, and he had been present on the day of Pentecost, what would have been required of John? To be baptized. It wouldn't be Jesus doing it at that point, but it was the baptism of Jesus. John would have needed to be baptized for the remission of his sins. It would have been required of him. So John has a valid point in some senses because he says, look, just, just stop right here. You're blowing my theology now. Uh, you don't need to be me baptizing you. I need, you need, let's swap places. You baptize me. I know who you are. I know why you're here. But watch what Jesus says and how he answers this. This is why Matthew's account to me just expands uh, quite a bit of it. Verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. Meaning, don't, don't delay. Let's go through with this. Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he suffered him. And then John's, uh, Matthew's account, 16, parallels with Mark again. So really, only 14 and 15 are kind of thrown in there, inserted for uh, more, of the, more of the account, the rest of the story, if you will. And Jesus, verse 16, when he was baptized, went straightway up out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So we've got a little bit of detail there. It's not anything different. Uh, but in this account, this tells us it was the Spirit of God descending upon him. Now, is there any difference, really, in, in, in one sense, than the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit? There, there's not a lot of error there. There are three distinct personalities by that. God the Father, as we refer to him, God the Spirit, or Holy Ghost, and then God the Son, or you might say God the Word. They're distinct personalities, but that's a part of the Godhead. And what's interesting to me is that what Matthew reminds us of, again, Mark's not overlooking this, but Matthew reminds us of the fact that all three persons of the Godhead were present here and working together in one sense on this confirmation that he is who he said he was. Yes, sir. All right, so what do we have here then? What, what other details do we draw out? Well, as I just illustrated, we have the discussion here and we have Jesus telling him that his purpose for being there, again, was not to have his sins washed away. He had none, nor would he. But his purpose for being there was to fulfill, he said, for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? It means Jesus wants to do right, but who else does he want to do right? 
everybody. <laughs> Here's what I have uh, as far as, well, I didn't even put that up, but there's that, that slide that would have shown that. This is where the handout comes in handy because we're not gonna spend any time really looking through some of this, but there are several ways, and I said there, I've put down four, there's probably 400, but there are a number of ways in which Jesus fulfills us and his willingness to be willing himself and call on us to do the same to fulfill all righteousness definitely takes care of our issues. For example, the ones I have up here at least, and I won't go through them, but our, our sacrifice is fulfilled in this. Who else could have, without God's will, no one is the answer, but who else could have fit the bill and been our sacrifice? Could any of us have stood up? Could any of those disciples in the day have just stood up and somebody stepped forward and said, look, that's about enough of this. I'll be the sacrifice. I'll be the one who will take the, the blow on the cross. I'll be hung and die on the cross. I'll fulfill myself. You know, I've read, many of them could have said, I've read the Old Testament. I know what the prophets had to say, and, and I can easily go by and do all that. It'll be, it'll be hard there at the end, but I'll do that for all of y'all. Someone the other day was, was speaking to us. I forget exactly who it was, but I remember there was a long discussion on it. But it was Cohen. I guess it was Cohen. What did Paul want to do? He said he would have died for those people if it would have done any good. Well, it won't do any good. And so these scriptures here, there are many parallels other than this, but these scriptures let us know that Jesus fulfilled as our sacrifice. Number two, he fulfilled as far as making a substitute. You know, if you ask any, anybody, any child or anything else that's been in and around the church for very long, you ask them, say, you know, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? What's the answer to that? To take away our, you know, sin. Again, through faithful obedience, to take away our sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Well, that, that is why he died on the cross. That's the main reason why he died on the cross. But why else would he do that? Why did he live? To fulfill righteousness. He lived. Uh, God could have dropped Jesus down on a parachute and had him die on the cross. He wouldn't have had to go through any of these phases in his life or deal with anything other than he proved that he could be a substitute for us. He proved that he could have a sinless life. The very next part of this account, uh, beginning in verse 12, is Mark's account of Jesus going and meeting with Satan in the wilderness. And Satan attempting to tempt Jesus to sin in which Jesus did not fail. He stands as our substitute, our substitutionary sacrifice. Number three, I've got on here on the screen, he fulfilled by being our shelter. And I mean by that, he's our covering, he's our protection. You know, if you and I meet with Satan, and we wouldn't do it physically as he did, or literally as he did, but if you and I met with Satan today, what would protect us from him? The Word of God, which is really do the math on that, not math, but if you really do the connections on that, the Word of God, W-R-D, the Logos, is Jesus. You know, we have it on these pages, we have it we can visualize, but Jesus was that living word. Not the graphe, not, not what is penned, not what is written, but he's that living word. And so he stands as our cover in that or shelter. And the last one here, he fulfilled our satisfaction. Once Jesus came to this earth, lived and died as he did, there is no other reason on earth 
in which you should not be, I should not be able to find satisfaction in him. And of course, that's borne out in these passages. One I did not put up, but really it's tracked all the way through John's account or the many times when Jesus said what? I am the, and he'd fulfill that sentence, the bread of life, the living water, you know. And on and on he names those things. He was all of that. And basically, if you take those things that he mentioned in John's account, which John uh, does a prolific uh, way of doing that, you take all that and draw it together, what John basically says is Jesus is everything and all. And the idea of being I am is being all sufficient. And so he is sufficient. Jesus fulfills all of that. Of course, this draws itself back to this account in Matthew. So there's a whole sheet that not only has similar references, a few different ones, and, and all those references, I went ahead and just printed out. That's from the New King James Version on the sheet, so if you relate to that as well. So next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up in verse 12 and uh, get some more idea from this, but hopefully um, we'll continue to see just how important it was that Jesus was fulfilling what God had prophesied him to be. Any question or comment? All right, y'all have a good evening. Be safe, headed home.